In August 2014, Mary and I boarded a plane to head to Scotland, where we would spend the next several months as I worked on my dissertation in the area of preaching. I was studying a Scottish preacher, and so what better place to do it than at the University of Edinburgh. We have a multitude of memories, both good and bad, of our time in Scotland. Uh, but, but many of them were just plain magical. Uh, there in Scotland, I was studying at a divinity school, which is situated in the center of the city. It is, uh, it is uh, called New College, and it's right in the center of Old Town. And now Edinburgh is built... Uh, on seven hills, and here at the center of town, it is a large hill, and at the top of the hill is my school. And so this is where I studied there at the University of Edinburgh, and uh, I would go, and uh, one of the classes that I uh, helped facilitate there, it was a group of preaching students, and we would meet in one of these towers, uh, the one on the right, we, we had a classroom in there, and here in this tower, it overlooked what they called Newtown. Now, Newtown, don't, don't get confused, it was built in the 1800s, but in Edinburgh, that's new. And so it overlooked Newtown, and so it, what you have is the, the school is situated right next to the castle. And uh, this is the Edinburgh Castle, and it overlooks... Now, I took this picture standing at the bus stop down in Newtown, and it looks up at this castle. It's a majestic scene. But, but what you have is, there from my school, it, you have a beautiful view. It's looking down in this valley. It, 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 it's like a valley goes down and then Newtown. And, and you're, you're up at an aerial view. You can take it all in. You can see all the people walking across the streets. You can see the gardens. And actually there, uh, overlooking, you're, you're kind of looking down on this garden. They call it... Prince's Street Garden. And uh, around the end of October, I was sitting in that tower looking out over Prince's Street Garden, and I noticed that some things were starting to happen. Uh, some trailers started coming in, and they started unloading these trailers. They, they started uh, putting up the, these little booths with the, with the red uh, roofs. And, and I, I watched some of this unfold in the next few weeks, and I, and I said, what, what's, what's going on? Well, somebody told me it's the Edinburgh Christmas market. And people from all over Europe will come to Edinburgh for this Christmas market, and uh, in the days and weeks that unfolded, I watched from this aerial view the whole Christmas market get put together. They had large Christmas trees, they had lights, they had festivities. But then I heard that the Christmas market was opening. And so Mary and I made our way, we lived just down the street, and we made our way, and we, on opening night, we walked through the streets. They had uh, hot cider, they had Ferris wheels, they had Christmas trees, they had uh, vendors from Germany, vendors from Hungary, they had vendors from all over the world creating uh, Christmas knickknacks and treasures. It was magical. Uh, but I'll tell you, it was so much more magical as we walked the streets 
than when I viewed it from the tower above. I was able to smell the, the, the smells of the cider, of the hot cocoa, the German sausages and the Italian uh, uh, cheeses. I could hear the, the shouts and the squeals of children. I could sense the excitement for Christmas as I walked those streets. The season of Advent is a time when we come down from the tower of our theology. We come down from the, the tower of what we believe as Christians and we walk the streets that Jesus walked. We hear the sounds of Christmas. We get up close and personal with the sights, the smells, the feelings of when Jesus first came to us. And so may I suggest that this picture there in the city of Edinburgh be a picture for us of the season of Advent. That we come down from the tower of of Christianity, and we walk with Jesus. That we imagine what it was like when Jesus first came. May we hear the sounds. May we feel the anticipation. And so it's in this spirit that we imagine what it must have been like. For 400 years, there had been silence. Uh, the prophet Malachi had, had ended his prophecy saying, someone would come, a new Elijah, who would prepare the way for the Lord, who would bring children uh, back to their parents, who would, who would prepare the coming of someone greater. But for 400 years... The Jewish people hadn't heard a word from God. This week during Thanksgiving, we discovered a book that my grandmother had written to our family. And uh, in it, she had just told family stories. And uh, one of those stories she told of my great, 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 great grandfather who came to America from England. And so he had been a clockmaker there in England, and we read about his story. And, and as I read this story, I couldn't imagine, you know, this is 300 years ago. I can't even imagine what that was like. And here we have, at the beginning of the New Testament, we have the Jewish people for 400 years, they haven't heard a word from God. It's, it's more distant than their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather who lived among the time of Malachi. So I wonder what it must have been like for Zechariah. He's a priest. He's a... He's a, he works in the temple of God. He goes in on a routine basis and, and lights the candles before the altar. He goes in and represents his people before God, but for 400 years, God's been silent. I wonder what that must have been like. 
If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to open up with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to look this morning at verses 57 through 80. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. It's found on page 724 in the Bibles in front of you. We read in verse 57, When it came time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, his name shall be called John. Let's pause there and rewind a few months. Here's Zechariah, he's coming into the temple doing the regular duties. It had been his turn that day. And so he goes in, and, and there in the temple, he hears a voice. The silence is broken. There in the temple, standing before the altar... There was an angel who said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, shall bear a son. And let me tell you a little bit about Zechariah. He was, uh, as we call it, uh, past his prime. Uh, put it frankly, he was an old fart. <laughs> Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, had no children. And that was a disgrace in his day. No legacy. No one to pass his name on to. So I imagine that for Zechariah, this was a bit of a, a sore spot in his life. He's past his prime, no children, no hope of a legacy. And here in the temple, an angel appears and he says, your prayer's been heard. You and your wife, you're going to have a child. And this is what the angel says. You are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. This is what he says in verse 16. Many of the people of Israel will come back to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And here... In the temple, the silence of God is broken. And God picks up right where he left off. You see, Malachi ends 
It's our last book in the Old Testament, and it ends with a prophecy that one in the spirit of Elijah would come and turn children back to their families. That we would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And, and it's here in the temple, I wonder what must have been going through Zechariah's mind as, as he is just interrupted in the routine of his day to see an angel of the Lord declaring to him that the impossible is going to happen. He's going to have a child. I wonder what was going through his mind when he said, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife, she's an old woman. And he doubted these words. Because of his doubt, the angel told him, you know what, Zechariah, you're going to have this child, but until that day, you're, you're not going to be able to speak. And what an what a ironic turn of events as the silence of God is broken, and Zechariah is silenced. And what we have in Luke chapter 1, as the narrative unfolds, is we have, in the verses that follow this, an announcement to Mary. That God's going to do the impossible, that she's going to have a child. But instead of doubt, she responds with faith. And so we have the announcement that John the Baptist is going to come from Zechariah. That God's going to do the impossible, that these, these old farts are going to have a child. And then we have the announcement that a virgin is going to have a child. And what we have as the narrative unfolds is Luke interweaves these two stories for us. He interweaves the story of Zechariah and, 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 and Elizabeth with the story of Mary and Joseph. He, he interweaves the story of John's birth with the story of Jesus' birth. And I think that Luke, as he writes this, he wants us to compare and contrast the two. You already see the contrast between Zechariah's response and Mary's. But as we come to our passage today at the end of Luke chapter 1, as, as, as John the Baptist is being, comes onto the scene as Zechariah and Elizabeth have a child, I think that Luke wants us to contrast this with the birth of Jesus. John is born, and here they are in, at the naming ceremony. And uh, I imagine that, that, that family is gathered, that, that, that people from the community. And you know when a child is born, everybody has input. Everybody, every, everybody wants to have a say, uh, what the child's named, you know. And here they are, and, and a name in that day was a pretty significant thing. 
If you'll remember, Zechariah probably longed, and we know that this had been his prayer, because the angel says, your prayer has been answered. He'd been longing, praying for a child, a legacy. So it only seemed appropriate, and everyone there agrees, that they would name the child Zach. They would name him Zechariah after his father. Elizabeth says, no. His name's to be John. They said to her in verse 61, there's no one among your relatives whose name has that name. You can, you can imagine like the mother-in-law saying this. Nobody has that name. <laughs> verse 62, they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. In verse 66, everyone who heard about this wondered about it, asking what then is this child going to be? It was assumed that they would name the child Zechariah. That he would get a family name. That his legacy, that his significance would be in who he was related to. But Zechariah and Elizabeth now saw that his significance was not in family lines. His significance was not in, in, in the legacy of earth. His significance was not in human relationships. His significance was in who he would point to. Because he would point to Jesus. He would prepare the way for Christmas. How do you prepare for Christmas? And Mary and I, before we left for our trip, we put up our tree. We decorated it so that when we came home, we would we'd be ready to go for Christmas season. You know, we put up some lights around the house. And I, I, I joke with Mary that Christmas is a time for clutter because there's all these knickknacks. <laughs> we've, got, we've got nativities. and it's, it's a wonderful season of decorations and preparations. How do we prepare as the church for Christmas? How do we prepare for the coming of Christ as we celebrate it at Christmas? I think that John the Baptist, here in Luke chapter 1, gives us a good picture of the best way to prepare for Christmas. As Elizabeth and Zechariah take claim to the promise that John would be more than just a descendant, that he would be one to prepare the way for Jesus, as they take claim to that promise in naming him John, it, it, and the question that everyone in the community is asking is a question that I think Luke wants us to ask as we read this narrative. They ask, what then will this child be? 
And I think, I think that's a rhetorical device that, that, that Luke is using to, to make us ask that question too. Okay, what, the, what then is the significance of John the Baptist? And here at this naming ceremony, as John has been named, and here is his son, his long-awaited son, that we're told in verse 67 that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, and he breaks out into a song. And this is one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture because it is chock full of the fulfillment of Scripture. We don't have time this morning to go through the the magnitude of the words of this song, but, but line after line, word after word, you find allusions to the promises of the Old Testament. But I want you to imagine with me, here we are, down from the tower on the streets with Jesus, we're here... At this naming ceremony. Zechariah names his son John. And Zechariah breaks out into a song. And he starts singing about a different child. I mean, imagine the scene. You're there in the hospital room. Your wife just gives birth. And you start singing about a different child. I think you're in it deep at this point. (laughs) Zechariah starts singing about Jesus. And this is what he says. He says in verse 68, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers to remember his covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah first starts by giving praise to God because Jesus is coming, not because John is here. And may I suggest for those of us who have families, that that, that the greatest significance of our families is not in the legacy of human relationships, but in the legacy of Jesus in our families. And here, as Zechariah, for the first time in nine months, his mouth is open and he's able to speak, and he praises God, not for his child first, for Jesus first. And I pray that this would be true in our homes, that this would be true in our preparations for for Christmas, that the coming of Jesus would be the reason we celebrate. The coming of Jesus would be more important than the coming of our kids home or or the coming together of family. That the coming of Jesus would be the central significance of our families. 
And this is what, what, what his song is all about. It's that Jesus has come to redeem his people. And that's what he says, he's visited us. He's come near. Our God is a God who comes near. A God who redeems, who, who rescues us. And so Christmas is a time where, where we realize that joy, has, joy to the world, Jesus has come to bring rescue, to bring redemption. And this is the significance of who Jesus is. And, and notice, uh, I, I wish we had time to go through this whole song, but there in verse uh, 74, it says the purpose of all of this, of Jesus' redemption, is to enable us to serve him without fear. The purpose of Christmas, the purpose of Jesus' coming, is to redeem us from our sin that it so easily entangles and to enable us to serve him without fear. Without fear of what might happen. Without fear of the unknown. You see, the coming of Jesus at Christmas is a game changer. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, it's a game changer in the way we see our, our world today. The way we see our government, the way we see our country because the coming in Jesus enables us to serve God without fear. Fear does not govern our service to God. We don't, we don't have to fear the, the taking away of li religious liberties. We don't have to fear what man might do. We don't have to fear because Jesus has come. And this is the significance of Jesus. And, and Zechariah just breaks out in a song praising God for the significance of Jesus. And then he praises God for the significance of John. This is what he says in verse 76. And you, my child, you will be a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah realized, and I hope that we can realize this morning, that the greatest significance of our lives is found in pointing to the significance of Christ. Let me say that again. The greatest significance of our lives is found in pointing to the significance of Christ. So may I suggest that as we head into this Christmas season, to make this season a significant one, to prepare well for this Christmas season, that, that the greatest way to prepare ourselves for Christmas is to turn our eyes to the significance of Christ's coming. 
the redemption that he brings, the forgiveness that he offers. And that we, like John the Baptist, would be those who prepare the way for Jesus. We have the imagery at the end of this song. We have the imagery of a sunrise, of light dawning in the darkness. I saw this, uh, this meme on the internet. It was, uh, it was a description of, of, of winter, especially here in New England. You know, it's getting dark pretty early. And it, it, there, there's something, you know, the, the Christmas blues, the, 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 it's the winter blues. You, you get, it's dark, you get kind of depressed, it's kind of a lonely season. A lot of emotions come out during winter, and I, I saw this and uh, I thought this was pretty funny. 4.59, you're like, it's light, 5 o'clock, dark. We have the picture of light shining in the darkness. A light has dawned. Isaiah 9 describes this. It says, a light has shone in the darkness. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. And this, back in Isaiah, you know, 700 years before Jesus would come, we have the, the foretelling that a light would dawn, that... that, that Joy would come in the midst of strife, that peace would come into a world that is broken, that, that Christ would come and that his light would shine. And John the Baptist would become one who would just simply point to the sunrise. Because the greatest significance of John the Baptist's life was that he pointed to Jesus, not himself. If we're honest, the holidays are often a time where we, where we put on, we put on a, a, a face. We, we kind of build, build ourselves up for these family gatherings. Sometimes we get together with family members we haven't seen in a while, and we, we want to look good. We want to sound good. We want to tell our story of this past year, of making it sound like we, we've been successful or done great things or... That we've got it all together. But the greatest significance of our lives is not about pointing to our significance. But pointing to the significance of Jesus. Later on in, John, in, in Luke's gospel, uh, John would be imprisoned. For, for preparing the way, telling people about Jesus. There he is in prison and trying to make sense of it all. You know, I'm a, here I am, a, you know, preparing the way and uh, telling people that Jesus is the one we've waited for. And here I am in prison. And so he sends messengers to Jesus. This is in Luke chapter 7. Sends messengers to Jesus and sa to say, hey, Jesus, uh, are you the one? Or should we expect another? Uh, you know, John is, is at this moment of doubt. Like, is this... Is this the right, is the, I, did I get all this right? Is the significance of Jesus really significant? There may be times where we, like John, you know, have these questions. And Jesus tells the messengers, you know, go back and tell John. I'm the one. But this is what he says to those messengers. He says, I tell you, Luke 7, 28, I tell you 
that no one born of, born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. No one who has ever been born is greater than John the Baptist. And this is what he says. But the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, John the Baptist was someone who pointed to the significance of Jesus, who, who understood, as, as John said in John 3.30, we find this, this marvelous phrase, I would encourage you to write this down, to ingrain this in your thinking. John the Baptist lived by this statement in John 3.30. He said, he must become greater, I must become less. That, that was how John the Baptist lived his life. Jesus is, must become greater, I must become less. And Jesus affirmed him that he, John the Baptist is the greatest, greatest man ever lived. But I tell you that the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so what Jesus does there, he gives us an invitation to join the narrative of Christmas. He gives us an, an invitation to be like John the Baptist. To be someone who prepares the way for Christmas, who prepares the way for Christ's coming by pointing to the significance of who Jesus is. So I encourage you. What does that look like this Christmas season? How can you prepare your heart, your life, your family, your celebrations... To have a lasting significance. The greatest significance of our lives is found in pointing to the significance of Jesus. So I encourage you to be prayerfully thinking about someone you might give one of those postcards to. Say, hey, we're celebrating Jesus this Christmas season and the significance of what that means. If you want to come out and join us, we'd love to have you. Maybe it's having a conversation with a family member who you, you've never talked about why you go to church on Sundays. Maybe it's building in some celebration of the significance of who Jesus is into our family celebrations. But I encourage you to be thoughtfully and prayerfully Considering this Christmas season, how we might be like John the Baptist. Someone who pointed to the significance of Christ before himself.